Well, it's good to see all of y'all on this first day of spring or something like that, whatever it is. But it's good to have all of you guests. I'm David. I'm the pastor of the church. We're so glad you're here. You're always welcome to anything that we have going on. It's wrapping up February. That means March is coming, which means sometime next month we're supposed to begin construction on phase two. People keep asking, when are we going to do it? Listen, there's 31 days in March. If on March 31st nothing's happened, I'll take a shovel. I'll go turn some dough over, and I'll say it started, and we don't have to have that discussion anymore. <laughs> but it's coming. If you're a guest, you're, you may not know that, but we're going we're gonna to begin construction on our phase two. New worship center, that's twice the size, space for, more space for children, and this will be converted into use space and more common space and everything else. So it's going to be really cool. Uh, starting next week, it's, it's the month of Easter. Easter's on March 31st. I begin uh, a series entitled The Journey to the Cross. And um, I finished up a series at the end of uh, January about God. Uh, the, last, the first two weeks of February, I didn't preach. And so these, last week and this week, I've kind of been in this two-week sermon. It's one sermon, uh, broken in half. And it's, uh, it's about the woman at the well. That's what it says up there. This is, this is a phenomenal story in uh, John chapter 4, by the way. It's a phenomenal story. And it's, it's, people know it. It's been preached. If you've been growing up in church, you've heard it. But it's just such a simple message. We make it complicated. We make it complex. We all do that. Preachers are great at taking things that are simple and making them complicated so it sounds like we're the only ones that know what's going on. But the truth is, this is a very simple, simple message and a simple story. And what I shared with you last week and I share with you this week as we look at the woman at the well part two in John chapter four, what I, what I want you to get out of this message this week is very simple. And it's really the heart of the Christian story. It's the heart of what Christianity is. No matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus can save you. You believe that, right? You got to believe that. And it means that you, you need to be saved, but we take that for granted sitting here at a Southern Baptist church, okay? We're going we're gonna to assume that. But no matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus can save you. And if you've already been a follower of Jesus, you've got to believe that the people you love and the people you care about and the people that seem so far from Jesus, you've got to believe that Jesus can save them. You've got to believe that as long as people can draw breath, Jesus can save them. And so last week we started with this journey with Jesus. And, uh, you know, just a quick recap. The gist of it, you can go back and listen to last week's message. But he leaves Jerusalem and he heads back home to Galilee. And along the way, he decides to go through Samaria. And he stops there right outside a place called Sychar, sends his disciples, who's ever hanging with him at the time, off to get some food. Because Jesus doesn't want them around. He's about to have an encounter with someone who doesn't even know it yet, with this woman. Now, as I shared last week, Jews and Samaritans are always at odds with each other. And it goes back centuries, Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were not Jewish. They were half Jews, half Gentile, or part Jew, part Gentile, whatever the, the bloodline was. They only looked at the first five books of what they called the scriptures back then, what we call the Old Testament now. They only followed those first five books. And they didn't even follow them right because they didn't keep the, the dietary laws or some of the customs of the day. And so they were always, to the Jew, unclean. They worshiped at a different place. You know, we're going to see that some today. You know, they didn't accept the rest of the, the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. So they didn't accept Jerusalem. They didn't believe in David was, you know, the line for which, you know, the Messiah would come. They didn't do all of that. So there's just this conflict both ways. But that conflict don't matter to Jesus. 
And so Jesus says, I'm going to Samaria. I'm going to meet somebody. You guys don't need to know about it. He just sends him away. And this woman comes up to him, and he encounters her. And we, we alluded to it last week, but, but this week we're going to hit on it hard. I mean, last week he talks about, you know, someone, you know, he talks about giving me some water. He begins the conversation, talks about living water, talks about eternal life. But this week what he's going to do is three simple things. He's going to confront her with her sin. He's going to challenge her false faith beliefs. And he's going to give her the opportunity to have faith in him. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus always confronts our sin. He always challenges the things in our belief system that are wrong. And he always gives us the opportunity to have faith in him. Verse 16. He said to the woman, go call your husband. Come here. You know, it really wasn't proper back then for a man and a woman to be alone like that and have a conversation. It's still not proper today. I'm almost always uncomfortable if, if I'm alone with, with a woman. You know, I, I prefer not to be in most cases. Oh, excuse me. I prefer not to be right now in all cases. Yeah, I mean, clarify. That didn't come out quite right. What cases are you okay with? Well, none, okay? <laughs> Let me just clarify. Go on the record as saying I'm not comfortable. So there's no question about that. So go get your husband. We should have this conversation. Now, Jesus has insight into her. And, and so, you know, she ain't married at the time. So she just says, well, you know, I'm not married. And Jesus is like, well, I know that. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now, he ain't your husband. Now, forget what you might think about our world today. Back then, 2,000 years ago, you know, being married five times wasn't a good thing. And then living with the guy that you're with, that ain't a good thing in any of the cultures back then, Jewish, Samaritan. I mean, that, there, there was a moral issue. This is a woman who had a morality problem. And in that world, at that time, and I would continue, that's still a morality problem today, you know, you know, at some point. I told you last week, and I mentioned it, when you're on your fifth, fifth marriage, is an indication if that one doesn't work, something's wrong on your part. Right? I mean, seriously, you, you, you forget. And then you're living with someone who's not your husband. There, there, there's, there, that's still not right in the eyes of God. I don't care what our culture thinks. I don't care what you think. It isn't right in the eyes of God. And so there's this problem in her life. And so he says, I'm going to confront you with it. And he does. Now, there's no more discussion. He doesn't beat her over the head with it. I told you last week, you know, in John 3.18, I quoted it, you know, paraphrased it. But Jesus doesn't condemn us, and the reason he doesn't condemn us is that we stand condemned already because we've rejected him. He didn't have to condemn the woman. He didn't have to beat her over the head with it because she's already knowing there's something wrong or she would have told him. The very fact that she just said, well, I'm not married, she knows there's some sin in her life. Listen, we confront people with sin because we're all sinners, all right? But we need to realize we don't take people's sin and beat them over the head with it. Because some, sometimes we act like, well, my sin's not as bad as your sin. And I don't know where you decided that, but you made that decision. It may not agree with what God thinks. So it, understanding sin is there. It's important here. Understand this. Don't think ever that your beliefs, choices, and actions don't matter to God. They do. It matters to God. God doesn't want you to sin. He wants you to have the life that's what he wants for you. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this as a preacher, of sometimes making it sound like the problem with sin is just that we sin against God, which we do, and that we live in rebellion against God, which we are. But don't forget, from God's perspective, part of the problem with our sin is we're not living the life he wants us to have. That when you live a morally deficient life, you're not living the life you could have. God created you not to live in sin. God created you to live a life that has meaning and purpose through him. You're missing life. 
That's why God despises your sin. Because you're not getting the life you could have with him. And that's what he wants for you. A woman, we understand, wants to change the subject. And so she does in verse 19. She says this. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's don't talk about me. Let's talk about you. Let's don't talk about my sin. I'll say something nice about you. Understand this. This is a pretty big time statement for her to make. Because as a Samaritan, they only thought of one person as being a prophet, and that's Moses. You know, forget the patriarchs, you know, whether, whether Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. I mean, because they rejected everything after Moses. But they didn't, they didn't think about Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those guys as prophets. It was Moses. And so they believed, because in Deuteronomy it says there's one going to come like Moses, they believed another prophet was going to come. But they believed that prophet would be like Moses. This is actually a pretty big statement because she's either doing one or two things. She's either beginning to recognize that maybe this is the prophet to come after Moses, or she's beginning to recognize, at least from a Jewish perspective, this guy is different. He has the role of a prophet. So this is a pretty big-time statement for her. To indicate that, mm, you know, you, you, you have the role of a prophet. But then, but then she does something else. But I want to point something out to you, she basically says in the next couple of verses. You worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here at Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. Now, what she's saying is, I recognize something about you, but understand, I think what you do and your worship is deficient. We reject that. We don't believe in the worship of Jerusalem. Instead, we believe the worship right here that this Gerizim is the mountain of God. Now, here's what they did. And what, they, what they did as the Samaritans, they took parts of Genesis and the other you know, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. They took parts of those books. And while they said they followed them, they didn't follow them completely. Sometimes they twisted them. You know, I already shared with you last week that when it came to the dietary laws, they completely rejected that. So they were unclean. And so they would take parts, like it says in, uh, like they believe, for instance, that Moses offered Isaiah or the, that as the sacrifice was not at Mount Moriah, which is where Jerusalem is, which is what it teaches in Genesis chapter 22. But they twisted it and said it was at Mount Gerizim. They, they, they said that where Abraham met Melchizedek was at Gerizim. They said that Moses, while he didn't go into the promised land, when he was at the entrance of the promised land, it was at Mount Gerizim instead of, of where it says uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. In other words, they took their Bible and the parts that didn't fit their theology, they changed it. By the way, that happens all the time. That still goes on today. For instance, we're coming into the Easter season. There's going to be churches in our town that call themselves Christians. Some of them, main, the old mainline Christian churches, some of them. And they're going to have people in there who they're going to do all the Easter things. They're going to do, wear all the fancy clothes, have all the different colored stuff everywhere, and all the different rituals they like to have at Easter. And then they're going to talk about the resurrection, but what they mean by the resurrection is not the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. What they mean is that it's a symbolic resurrection. And that's exactly what they mean. Not that he physically came back, but that resurrection symbolizes something else. And that's what they mean, whether they teach it or not. Many of them will teach that. In other words, they have taken what is taught in the New Testament and, and corrupted it, twisted it, turned it to fit their own theology. They have designed their own Jesus. I talk all the time about designing your own Jesus. You know, I'm already working on the 2025 sermons. I got a series in there somewhere. 
And there's another message in there, what I'm going to talk about, the way that people just design, they create their own version of Jesus. And this is what they were doing not of Jesus. They just took their scriptures and they twisted it and turned it around to make it fit what they wanted. And they rejected truth. And then Jesus replies to her this way. In verse 22, he says to her, woman, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, he says this. When you talk about worship, and, while it, and, and John wrote in Greek, and probably, it's possible they had the conversation in Greek. Most likely it was in some form of Hebrew, we call Aramaic, but in Hebrew. And the New Testament writers knew to put everything in Greek, and John was a master at that. The word worship means to bow before. So we think of worship like we're doing right now. You come, we sing some songs, we have some preaching, you know, we do some things, that's worship. And, and it is, and it's not, I mean, it absolutely is worship, but the word worship actually means more than that. It has the connotation of bowing down before. And it's the idea then of you bow before a deity that becomes the Lord of your life and you're committed to that. So you're worshiping, in theory at least, because you're committed to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we worship, that's why we have a worship service. I am worshiping today because of my commitment to God through Jesus. And so he's saying what you're committed to, you don't even know. It's not just that you don't have the head knowledge. You have no connection to. You don't understand it. And then he says this, but salvation, and he brings up salvation. And here's an interesting thing. The Jews didn't even talk about salvation that much, much less the Samaritans. But he's going beyond just worship. He's going beyond just understanding commitment. He's saying a deliverance, and that's what salvation is, is deliverance. A deliverance has to occur in your life. You've got to be delivered from the sin in your life. He says salvation doesn't come from you who don't even know God. It comes from the Jews. That doesn't mean it's for the Jews or that it belongs to the, word, to the Jews. The word from means out of. It means that salvation will come out of the Jews. He's talking about the Messiah. This goes, this goes back to the time of Abraham. When God told Abraham, the whole world will be blessed through you. It goes back to when Jacob blessed or cursed, depending on how you looked at it, his 12 kids, boys. And in, and in Genesis 49.10, he tells Judah, the scepter will always be in your family. In other words, whatever's going to happen is going to come through you. And Jesus, the Messiah, comes that way through Judah, through David. In other words... Whatever is going to happen to the deliverance of people, you've missed it entirely. You don't even know what you're doing. And he says, you, you've, you've worshipped all wrong. Verse 24, he says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In 23, he says, it doesn't matter where you, or just come in a time, it doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter you worship in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it doesn't matter at all. What you've got to understand is that worship becomes something different. With, with the arrival of Jesus, with the arrival of that salvation, worship, that commitment is, some, is something different. God is spirit, right? He's not an idol, and they all know that. They, they would all agree with that. Jews and, and, and Samaritans would alike would agree that God is spirit. So Jesus says, how do you worship spirit? Not with the form not with the structures that we all have, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Samaritan alike, but you worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, the worship is spiritual. It's a relational connection. We need to understand our commitment to God is a relational connection. It's not just the form. It's not that you showed up, 
you sang all the songs and you sang them good and even raised one of your hands up you know, halfway through one of them to show that you're really spiritual. Because I never do that because I'm not spiritual. <laughs> and it's not that when I preach, you nod your head once in a while, maybe even take a note. Try to remember what he said later. It's that there's a connection to God. And that spiritual connection is based on truth. In other words, it, it, it's got to be the right connection. You don't get to make it up as you go along. See, the Samaritans just made it up. Today, there are plenty of people who think of themselves as Christians that just make it up as they go along. They create their own understanding of how to come to God, and it's not based on truth. They deny the resurrection. They deny the deity of Jesus. They say, well, you know, there's more than one way to come to God. And these are people in churches who believe that. They have lost truth because Jesus is truth. you got to worship him that way. Well, the woman hears him, and he's getting through to her. And in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. In other words, whether the Samaritans thought of the Messiah, they knew the Jews did. I knew the Messiah is coming. That is the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. He's, what she's saying is this. When the day comes that the guy who is the guy comes, he's going to tell us what we need to know. Now, in some way, isn't that what Jesus has been doing? You go back to last week, he talks about living water. He talks about eternal life. He's looked at her and he has said to her, your morals are messed up. He's looked at her and said, your belief system's messed up. Hasn't he been telling her that thing? She said, I know when Messiah comes. I know when the one comes. <clears throat> He'll tell us all things. And then Jesus does what only Jesus can do, the way only Jesus can do it. In verse 26, Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. I'm the one. In, in the Greek, the word I is emphatic. It's two Greek words, ego, ami, which means I, I am. He's saying I, I am. It's emphatic. We don't talk that way, but what he's saying, I and only I. Now, if he's speaking Hebrew, that's fine. He was so emphatic. John wrote it in Greek, but he's saying, I'm the only one. It means I and only I am this way. A lot of times in the Gospel of John, he writes down Jesus saying that in the Greek, I, I, me. In fact, there's seven particulars, more than seven times, but in seven very special times, we call them the seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus relates who he is to some aspect of being Messiah. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door that the sheep enter. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. People need to understand what he means by that. He's the only way is what he's saying. And I am the true vine. In those statements, he's saying, I and only I occupy or do something that relates to what the Messiah does. He's not saying that here. He's just saying I'm the Messiah. There are people who will sometimes say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Really? What do you think this is? Do you ever read the New Testament? Do you read it and pay attention? Of course. She's saying the Messiah will come. He's saying, well, I'm the guy. I'm it. Any person can understand. He's claiming that. He says that. She decides to leave about to decide the disciples come back. You know, the disciples are coming with all these groceries. They've been buying food. She's walking away from Jesus. They're like, what in the world was going on Jesus? He's going to tell them in just a moment. But John tells us that when she got back to the people in the city, and this doesn't all happen, bang, bang, bang. It takes a little bit of time. She's, got, you know, she's not the most popular girl in all of Sychar. 
And so she's got to gather people. And here's what she says in verse 29. Come and see. A man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Or in other words, this is the guy. You come and see. This guy that told me everything I've done. She's admitting her sin. And she's saying, this guy's got to be the Christ. And they all said, maybe. And they listened to her, and they decided to go out and see Jesus. And so the city gathers up. You know, they're, they're going out on the road, and all their white little robes flowing, going out there. In the meantime, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them, you know, I came to do, I'm doing what the God called me to do. The Father sent me for a purpose. That's what I'm doing. And then, and then Jesus sees the people of Sychar coming. He looks, and he says to his guys, and there may have been some gals there too at the time, see over there the fields, they're white into the harvest. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And the people came, and they began to believe. And then they asked Jesus to stay a while, around a while, and John sums it up this way. Many more believed because of his word. Because they were with Jesus, because they encountered Jesus, more started to believe. And they said, we're saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. Initially, what you said got us to Jesus. But notice, we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We have heard him. We've encountered him. He's confronted us with our sin. He has challenged our faith. Now, we know this guy is the one who is the one. And we know he is the Savior of all the world, including us. That day, their lives came to a turning point, and their lives changed. Understand this, it's because they encountered Jesus. And everyone who comes to faith in Jesus must at some point encounter Jesus. You're not going to come to faith in Jesus because you were born into a Baptist home. You're not going to come to faith in Jesus because you were baptized as an infant, as a Catholic, Presbyterian, or whatever else you were baptized at. You're not going to come to faith in Jesus just because you believe a few things. It's only when, in a way that is amazing, you encounter him. You're not going to actually see him. But you're encountering him today. You're encountering him through life. You're encountering him through scriptures. And when you do, he confronts your sin. He challenges your faith. He calls you to believe. We're all on a faith journey of some importance, of some, some capacity. That's exactly where that woman at the well found herself, at a turning point in her life. Even followers of Jesus, we're still on that, that journey. We still come to those turning points in life. I remember it was 20 plus years ago, and you know, I had success in ministry, but now it was stagnant, and I couldn't figure out why. And as I began to think about it, I began to understand everything I taught, the things I were taught weren't working, the things I'd done before weren't working, what was going on, and I began to think, why are things not working? Some churches are growing, but they're different. And the way they approach things are different. So, I mean, I'm doing all the things the way I'm supposed to. And I begin to think, what, you know, what is it in life that matters? And I begin to recognize that in my ministry, and specifically in a lot of the churches in general, the churches I've been, they had too many, too many's. We had too many possibilities for people. We had too many, you know, we had too many um, programs. We had too many people. We had too many priorities. When I say too many people, I mean this. We had too many people trying to determine what the priorities, programs, and possibilities were, and none of them should have been doing it. And churches were a mess, and my churches were a mess. The churches at that time. And, you know, what in the world's going on? By the way, that was you when I came here. 
That was this church. You had too many possibilities, too many things scheduled. You had too many programs. And you had too many priorities that were in conflict. You had too many people who had no business making those decisions, making those decisions. And you were a mess. That's just why you ended up calling me. And I began to realize it's really simple. We've made it too complicated. What matters in life is Jesus. And then I, I, I came to this understanding that I've always kind of knew, but this became the focal point of my life at that point. Following Jesus is all that matters. It's all that matters. One day, all of us will face Jesus, and he's going to ask the question, did you follow me? And we don't get to answer that question by the way he answers it. He's the one who answers whether we follow him or not. And he will look to those who follow him and said, you turn from your sin, you turn to me in faith, you follow me. Yeah, come on. And, and we get to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, where it's the coolest thing that can be. It's beyond our imagination. But he's going to look at some people, and he's going to answer it for them, and he's going to say, you didn't follow me. No matter what you think you believe, no matter what you think you did, you never turned from your sin, you never gave your life to me, you never followed me. And those people will spend eternity away from Jesus, away from the Father, in the place we called hell, suffering for all eternity because of their sin and rebellion. So what all that really matters is do we follow Jesus? And I know that there are in life preachers and professors who are you know, not comfortable and say, well, that's maybe too idealistic or too simplistic. And I've simply asked anyone, I have this many times, who said they don't really see it that way, tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me that when we face Jesus, that's not the most important thing. What is the, what is the thing that determines where we spend eternity? According to Jesus, it's Jesus. It's following him. That pure and simple. If you've never followed Jesus, you've got to understand what you believe, how you live, in the end won't matter if you don't trust him with your life. And when you do trust Jesus with your life, understand what matters at that point. And people say, well, you know, we've got to do a lot of doctrine teaching. Okay, I get it. I teach doctrine. I'll do all that. We've got to minister to people. Yeah, we do all that. But here's me tell you what's still the most important thing is that there are people you know that don't need Jesus that need Jesus. So the most important thing you can do as a follower of Jesus is help the people who don't know Jesus to know him. My job is to help you with that. You don't believe me? What did the woman do when she found Jesus? She left and went and told the people who despised her the people who rejected her, the people who wouldn't allow her into their world, she went to them and said, I have found the Christ. I have found Jesus. Come on. You can find him too. That's what it boils down to. And all of you probably in some way identify with the woman or the people. Maybe... You identify, if you're a follower of Jesus, with the disciples who I really didn't talk about much, but were the guys who, who quite didn't get it yet, who Jesus is having to explain it to them. There's the harvest. Go get the harvest. There are the people. Go get the people. As important as learning everything you can learn is, and it's important, and as important as meeting the ministry needs of people is, they are, and it's important, don't get me wrong, it is in the end, all that matters is Jesus. So here's the thing. You must follow Jesus his way. And his way is the only way. You have to turn from your sin. 
and trust him as your savior. You don't get to change that. You don't get to adjust that. You don't get to modify that to fit your life and your beliefs. That's his call. That's what he expects of you and me. And so I began the message today like I began the message last week. Saying to you, that no matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus can save you. You have to believe that because it's true. It doesn't matter what sin is in your life. It doesn't matter what you've thought about God. None of that is what matters. What matters is what you do with Jesus at this point because you're at a turning point in your life. You're at the point where he is confronting you with your sin, challenging your beliefs, but more importantly, giving you the opportunity to trust him by turning away from your sin and giving your life to him as Savior and following him all your life. That is the story of the woman. That is the story of those people. That can be the story of your life, to trust him. And for those of you that already trust him, the people you love and care about, what else matters? But whether they trust him too, whether or not they follow him as well. Some of us will be standing here in just a moment. And if you've never trusted Christ to be your savior and you want to do that, you can come do that. We'll pray with you. We'll talk to you. If you want to pray for someone you love, you can do that as well. But just understand, it's not complicated. It's not difficult. Don't make it hard. The story of the woman of the well is such a simple story. It's a story about a woman who didn't follow Jesus. And then she did. And that can be the story of your life. All you have to do is follow Jesus. So, Father, as we come to this beautiful story of this woman who <laughs> sinned so much. I mean, she did. And was so, so many ways. And yet this compassionate, loving Christ who confronted her sin and challenged her false beliefs more than anything just said, you can trust me. He said, I am he. I'm the one. And she followed him that day. And she went and told other people to follow him as well. This is what changes our life. This is the turning point. So let us, Father, in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit become those types of followers to turn from our sin and give our life to Jesus and to follow him in his way.